Ed Trusted, Season 1, The Critical Race Theory Craze That Is Sweeping the Nation. Episode 5, Educating in an Age of Censorship. As a teacher, it is my responsibility to have open lines of communication with parents so that they feel comfortable, but also to stand firm on what it is that I will be teaching and how I will make sure it is correct, authentic, and inclusive of everyone sitting in my classroom. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. This is the fifth episode of a new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we're talking about the accusation that the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to in some way move to restrict the instruction schools provide children, according to an analysis by Education Week. Some of the laws skirt around the idea of directly censoring classroom materials and discussions, but some specifically forbid teaching critical race theory and specific materials such as the 1619 Project. As we discussed in our second episode, it is hard to imagine these laws will survive a court challenge. In this episode, we will be talking with educators about how they are facing this school year in the face of concerted attack on their work and their profession. To talk about this, we have a terrific panel of educators. Sharifa Mason is a State of Texas Master Social Studies teacher. She teaches at Zumwalt Middle School in Oak Cliff, a neighborhood in Dallas, and has received many awards for her teaching. Among her many accomplishments, she is the producer of From the Block, a documentary that she is hoping will be used in professional development of teachers. Welcome, Ms. Mason. Thank you. Thomas Anderson is also a middle school social studies teacher at Excel Charter School, just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Mr. Anderson. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sergio Garcia is principal of Artesia High School in the ABC Unified School District in Los Angeles County. Those of you who are listeners of the Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times podcast will recognize Mr. Garcia and remember him as an extraordinary principal. I wrote about him and the school he leads in my 2017 book, Schools That Succeed from Harvard Education Press. Welcome, Mr. Garcia. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I guess I'll just add, I was also a social studies teacher, so I definitely fit in. (laughs) There you go. Um, And finally, we have Kevin Levin, who began his career as a high school teacher in Mobile, Alabama, then taught in Virginia and the Boston area. He is also a scholar of the Civil War, specifically the Lost Cause mythology and how it has permeated through American culture through its monuments. He is a prolific author and has written for such publications as the New York Times, the Atlantic, and the Civil War Times. He has trained history and social studies teachers all over the country how to use primary documents in their teaching. Welcome, Mr. Levin. Hi, great to be here. Mr. Levin, I, I mostly know you from Twitter, and you recently had a very thoughtful thread of advice to teachers who are in states that have passed what are being called divisive concept laws. What is it you're urging them to do? 
Yeah. Um, I think first and foremost, I hope going into this new school year that history educators, social studies teachers first see themselves as professionals, see themselves as experts in their field. I know we're not always treated as such uh, in society, but, but we are. Um, we're highly educated. Uh, we take our job seriously. Uh, many of us are lifelong students of, of history, and we do our best to bring that scholarship to our students. At the same time, I do think we have to step back and acknowledge um, the political climate that we find ourselves in, that right now we're in a period of time where history, or more specifically history education, has become highly politicized. And I think going into the, the school year, especially in states where these laws have been passed, it's, um, it's a good idea to to think about you know, how you might end up having to deal with some of these uh, scenarios of being called out by um, the community or, or specific parents. Um, you know, I suggest that, um, that teachers, uh, that departments first and foremost, um, talk about this issue, um, talk about how they might respond um, in, in a specific crisis. I think for specific individual teachers, keeping the lines of communication open with department chairs, running ideas and lesson plans uh, by their colleagues uh, to gain perspective is a good idea. Um, and keeping the lines of communication open with parents uh, when it comes to certain, to certain topics. Um, we have to teach our content. And of course, some of that content is controversial. Um, so that's where I would start. Uh, Ms. Mason, you're one of the teachers Mr. Levin is aiming his advice at. You teach in Texas, which has passed a law that pa places limits on what you can teach. Is Mr. Levin's advice good? Is that how you're thinking about your classes this year? I totally agree with Mr. Levin. I think you have to look at everything from a collaborative lens. And I think that is what he is speaking towards when he says that we have to have an open line of communication, that we need to ensure that we are sharing lesson plans, getting different perspectives and trying to be as inclusive as possible while teaching a subject that we know is controversial. I think it's extremely important for us to recognize our power in this moment, even though we may feel a little powerless. Um, we have Generation Z, who's our most embracing and inclusive generation born to date. And we need to give them the knowledge and information they need to navigate this climate to Mr. Levin's point earlier. We have to give this information to our students. They need it. And the most important reason that they have to have it is because we want to dismantle these systems. We want these systems to be broken down. And so teaching this information in the most correct and honest and authentic ways are what is going to allow us to be successful and to permeate this system to provide the information that our students need. We need them to understand the inequity that slavery caused, but we also need them to understand that in order to disseminate that inequity, we have to build collaborative partnerships across all races and ethnicities. So I absolutely agree with what Mr. Levin is saying. I believe that as a teacher, it is my responsibility to have open lines of communication with parents so that they feel comfortable, but also to stand firm on what it is that I will be teaching and how I will make sure it is correct, authentic, and inclusive of everyone sitting in my classroom. 
So, Mr. Anderson, you're in a slightly different position from uh, Ms. Mason. You're in Minnesota, which has not passed any legislation, but teachers in Minnesota are navigating some of the same public opinion currents that exist in Texas. How are you thinking about planning your lessons this year? Yeah, it's definitely true. We aren't under the legal same legal pressure, um, but in the broader state climate, there's definitely a lot of disagreement and controversy. Um, in my own context, I feel very uh, secure and able to teach the truth and, and those things. But I think really for my students, I want them to be equipped and to have the skills to to navigate these conversations themselves. Um, and just so, and the standards, you know, are fairly decent in this in the sense that they provide a lot of openness to how you actually get into the content. You know, there's standards about the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and that just begins a whole conversation where we can get into the primary sources um, and just read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, of course, but also read them alongside some of the other primary sources that would shed light on the history of racism, um, just like Thomas Jefferson's notes on Virginia and some of the concepts of race that were happening at the time or the, the Virginia slave laws and helping students to think about, you know, the Constitution adopted some of these right into them or didn't explicitly deal with them. So what does that mean? Um, and just talking about a variety of sources from that time that would really shed light on the topic of race itself that was really embedded into these institutions that really uh, was these institutions, um, these documents really have the racism embedded in the concepts and the categories and just how they were fitting into that context um, and just of you know how the founders thought about race and the fact that they were enslavers and just the story of Ona Judge, for example, is another story of just the human side of these things where you can bring primary sources in. She was interviewed, there's newspaper articles of her, you know, she was the, the um, enslaved young girl who escaped from the Washington residence in Philadelphia. And there's a newspaper clipping about that. So just there's so many different sources that we can go to and ask critical questions. And I think our students are more than capable of having those critical conversations. We don't need to lead them like ideologically to some conclusion because personally, I believe the truth of of our history is in those documents and if we read them carefully you know these are some of the the skills that they need for reading comprehension just cite evidence from the text and author's purpose those kind of basic skills that we're teaching students um bloom's taxonomy and those kind of you know critical thinking skills that we want students to have when we get into those sources the truth in my opinion is in those sources and can really uh come out and i think students are more than capable of, of doing that and have a lot to teach us. And um, so that's really, I think for, for me, my focus is getting kids into the sources, critical thinking, critically thinking about them. And of course they need the background knowledge and the vocab and the timelines and the dates. They need all that kind of baseline information, but they also uh, need to be equipped in, uh, with those higher level skills that they're gonna need as they, they navigate this society, as they become policymakers, as they become uh, teachers themselves or uh, in business or whatever field they go into, they're going to need to navigate these racist systems that exist. And so in Minnesota, we don't have the laws, but we have huge racial disparities here um, that are, and there's, there's a lot of urgency in some sectors and there's not a lot of urgency in the broader state, I would say. So I think um, all of that together is, is my approach is giving our students what they need to, to navigate um, and primary sources to me and the standards, there's a lot there that can be done. 
that is basically just, you know, we say just teach the truth. Um, I think that's at the end of the day what the goal is uh, for me. So let me ask you, Mr. Garcia, again, California hasn't passed a law. You're no, you don't have, and you know, it, it seems to be such a liberal state from the rest, from the perspective of the rest of the country, it's unlikely to pass such a law. And yet you told me that your school is coming under some scrutiny. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that. We're the only high, we're the only urban high school in our district. And we actually teach ethnic studies. We have the class ethnic studies. We have a year long class that our kids go through it, but we're the only uh, school in the district that does this. At the last board meeting, it wasn't specifically directed at us, but the whole district is looking at uh, adopting ethnic studies and creating a semester class, making a graduation requirement for our students. And we got some very angry, and I don't know that they even are residents of our district, but they definitely and absolutely are very organized in the sense that they're reaching out to different school boards, different board members about how we should not be teaching anything that has to deal with critical race theory, shouldn't be teaching ethnic studies classes, and they are really pushing our school board, which recently has had a little bit of a shift into saying that we cannot teach um, anything that has to deal with race at this point. But what kind of surprised me was the level of anger, because like you, we're in California, we're supposed to be a lot more liberal. We shouldn't be having these issues. But the reality is that racism is alive and well. And I think that uh, we have a process in which a lot of the conservative right is in a grieving mode. They're grieving the loss of their last administration. And as they're sitting there grieving, they're seeing what they can grab. They're seeing how they can get even. They're seeing how they can come out and fight. And it was also, you know, I'll be a little bit more political than this, the fact that I believe the last administration allowed for racism to come up in the front and center of most of the things that happened for people to speak their mind that used to be on the ground. Racism before that, you know, it was there. It was alive and we need to deal with it. But a lot of it, people were not were afraid to express it. I think the last administration allowed it to come up and be loud and clear in everybody else's face. And they're afraid of going back to that. And I think that we're seeing a movement that is nationwide and a very well-organized movement to try to shut us down and actually not allow us to speak when it comes to race. And I truly and strongly believe that we fight that. Um, I'm actually meeting with my social studies department at the beginning of school. They come back to 19, we'll spend some time in the 19. Uh, basically making sure that we're addressing all these issues. We're looking at primary sources and doing a lot of the critical thinking that uh, you talked about. But also we need to make sure that we're having guided discussions to make sure that we understand where are we going, what's happening in our country right now, and why it's important for our kids to take action. Tanji, I've been asking all the questions. I bet you have. Yeah, some. I was, yeah, I was. <laughs> as soon as uh, Sergio was talking, we said, you know, we think of racism as being quiet uh, or having gone underground. I think we think that way when we have an understanding of racism as being individual acts by individual mean people. Um, and so I think we we hold it that way. But when we understand that it is a systemic way and an approach to the world, it definitely creates a level of um, interest and a level of, I'll say, consternation from people because they don't understand what that means 
for race to sit at the center of something um, and how it shapes the ways in which we we do what we do. But I think the other question I have for all of you, um, particularly for uh, Sharifa, Miss Mason, how are you prepared to address the pushback you're going to get? Um, what kind of support mechanisms are being put in place at the leadership level in your area to help support you realizing that you're going to still you're going to you're going to teach what you're going to teach? So how are you going to be supported in that? That's a good question. I think um, when you look at the TEKS that we have, which are our standards here in Texas, um, they really don't open up for the opportunity for critical race theory. The textbooks that we utilize don't tell the full story, right? So being that I'm a black teacher who teaches in a predominantly black and brown school, it has always been my intention and purpose to teach with the fidelity and authenticity that I need my students to learn from. And so um, what I have put in place is, uh, to Mr. Levin's point, again, uh, that open communication with my principal about what I'm teaching, what it should look like to ensure that I'm staying within the bounds, but also that I'm not confining myself in spaces that I do not have to, that I'm allowing myself the opportunity to be flexible and adaptable so that I am meeting the requirements that are being placed on me by the state, but that I'm also meeting the requirements that are being placed on me by my students, which is to be the best, most authentic teacher I can be. Um, the gentleman that spoke after me, I can't remember his name, but he brought up really great points about using primary sources and allowing primary sources to guide and drive your teaching because there are no lies there. They tell what the story truly was. And so I think that uh, utilizing primary sources often, making sure students have access to be able to touch history in the most tangible way possible by reading these documents, letting the narrative be told by the people who were actually there, and then allowing my students to understand their place now in correcting these wrongs. Um, for me in my classroom, critical race theory isn't necessarily a name because uh, to that gentleman's point as well, we want to teach the truth. So when you teach the truth, you tell the story from all sides, number one. And more importantly, what you do is you empower your students to recognize their place and their space in dismantling the systems today. And so I'm a real big believer in teaching my students about collaborative partnerships. So when I teach my students about slavery, I don't just talk about the fact that white people were slave owners. I also talk about William Lloyd Garrison, who was a white abolitionist who published a weekly newspaper to dismantle the system of slavery. So when you tell the whole story, then students can see that there were people on both sides who looked like them and who didn't look like them, who are part of the fight, who were committed to equity, who were embracing inclusion and diversity. And it helps them understand that they can mimic and model those people and they can become a part of dismantling and disrupting these things so that we can make some true changes in society. So I don't want to take away, I don't like the fact that we're trying to box this theory 
and these words critical race theory to make them something that seems even more oppressive when it's not. If we stick to telling the story as it really happened, telling all sides, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but empowering our students to be able to amplify their voices in changing these systems, I think that is when we will see the fruits of critical race theory or the fruits of learning how to navigate critical race theory when you have to and how you can make sure your students still understand history as it happened, but understand that they can be a part of changing that narrative. No, I totally absolutely understand that. And I I think the one piece I was really trying to get to is the protection. You know, a principal has already been fired. I think it was in Tennessee, maybe might have been been your state. And another teacher has also been fired. And they were the the teacher was fired because he introduced a Ta-Nehisi Coates article alongside the use of uh, primary documents. And so even in those spaces where the use of primary documents is is primary, teachers are still going to run the risk. And I think maybe even, you know, maybe Sergio or um, Mr. Levine, Levin, I'm sorry. Can we talk about what might be some ways leaders can support teachers? You know, as as they go into this school year, leadership is going to really be such a critical aspect of like running interference, you know what I mean? It's like you're going to have to be in that space of running interference and and how should they approach this? Sanji, what I can tell you is this is exactly why we're having a department meeting. First day the teachers are back and we're going to address what's going on, what is the common trends in our district and making sure that they understand that it's okay to teach, that it's okay that I'm that bumper between them and the people coming over that may become may say, no, you can't teach this. I mean, they got to go through me before they get to one of my teachers. Plus, we're setting the stage there for that to happen. Beyond that, I think the teachers union has to be pretty active. I think it's very important for that to happen. But I think it'll be basically I'm that protection that they need to do. Uh, do I have any protection? I don't think so. <laughs> but I can tell you that. <laughs> That, that has never stopped me before. No, it has not. <laughs> no, that has never stopped me before. And the reality is, it's my job to get everything out of the way of my teachers so they can teach. It's my way to make sure that I support my teachers. And we all need to have that sense that if that's what it takes for the truth to come out and for racism, for us to put a dent into racism, for us to be able to change what's going on right now, you know, that's fine. But it's for us. We all have to stand up and understand what that is. And I have a whole bunch of young teachers that um, need that protection if they're going to be able to speak the truth. Yeah, I I, I was just going to add, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, my bigger concern is, I mean, I'm, I obviously I'm concerned for the teachers who are in the classroom this year. But I'm also concerned with sort of the impact of all of this on on the future and attracting, uh, you know, young teachers to the profession. Um, to what extent is this going to do damage uh, to that? But again, I think certainly those open lines of communication. Um, I, I think Sergio just sort of nailed it. That's that's exactly what we need. I also just want to sort of add here. It's all. This is also an opportunity to engage students around the issues of the day, right? But the 
larger debate does sort of revolve around really important questions that we want our students to think about in the history classroom, which is, who are we as a nation? Who do we take ourselves to be? And of course, when we're thinking about that sort of collective identity, history obviously feeds into that. And I think one way to sort of engage students is to remind them that this is not an unusual situation to be in. This is not the first time in which history education has been politicized. Uh, it's always been politicized, one could argue, right? You can go back to the early 20th century and look at the extent to which the United Daughters of the Confederacy tried to control history textbooks. You can look at the 1950s and 60s and look at the textbooks that some Southern states issued in response to the civil rights efforts, right? In other words, recrafting uh, narratives about slavery, about reconstruction to reinforce the idea of African-Americans as second-class citizens or not as citizens at all. Uh, and as white people, as white Americans, uh, as sort of naturally um, deserving of first-class status. So history's always played that role. And maybe having students look at textbooks from the 1950s and 60s and comparing them to what they're looking at now and some of the debates we're having. I mean, certainly there are some risks perhaps in some districts, but I think overall, that's what, I mean, that's the opportunity I think that this moment offers us. I agree. I think it's really interesting because um, for several years in the advent of high stakes assessments really be coming to the fore, science and history had to take a back seat because they weren't tested. And so, you know, what gets tested gets taught. And so it wasn't being tested. Um, but now I think and we have was it Dr. Billings said to us, if you ever want um, adolescent to do something, tell them they can't do it and then they'll be wanting to do it. Right. And so how many high school kids or middle school kids were even thinking about critical race theory as a framework for knowledge building? But now, guess what they're all probably doing? Looking it all up and trying to figure out, you know, what it all is. So I think those points are really, really well taken. Thank you for that. I do want to. Uh, so I, I talked to a bunch of people in preparation for this podcast. And yesterday I spoke with a teacher in Oklahoma, which also has a, one of these divisive concept laws. And in Texas, I believe there's no enforcement mechanism, at least yet. There may be something, yeah, there may be something added in in the legislation. But in Oklahoma, there are two ways to for a parent or a student to complain, and that is through the principal, and then also to the straight to the state school board. And his point was, it doesn't matter how supportive my principal is, my license can still be taken away. This is also true in Tennessee. There's another uh, way to complain, and that is straight to the attorney general. I mean, that's already like criminal kinds of things go to attorney generals. So it's not enough to have the principals and even the superintendents. Uh, it seems to me we need courage at every level. And that's really what you're talking about, Ms. Mason and Mr. Le Levin and Mr. Anderson and Sergio, Mr. Garcia, um, is really talking about courage in, this, in the face of censorship. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think some of the sources that one of my favorite, one of my heroes from history is Ida B. Wells and just the way that she does a lot of amazing things. But she models the kind of 
critical thinking research skills. She went and researched and uh, did her own historical work. She was also a business person and a journalist and an activist. And so I think for our students, there are many examples of people. And you brought up uh, William Lloyd Garrison earlier. So for all students, there are examples of people who have been doing this work. Um, you know, Du Bois, even at his time, was writing about how the history textbooks were whitewashing history for specific reasons. And they, you know, he had a survey of textbooks at that time, which someone else had compiled, but he put into an article called The Propaganda of History that I really uh, enjoyed when I found it. But I think for this moment, there are many historical figures and people who have modeled the types of actions that we as teachers and as our students grow and become more active that they can emulate as well. It might be a time for courage for students as well as, as teachers. Well, we heard that from Dr. Santelisis when she said her students came up to her at the at one of the marches in Baltimore asking her about what they should learn and, and, and presenting to her text. So I think this is a moment where students are going to, students traditionally um, are far braver than adults. Uh, they are invincible in their own minds. Therefore, they tend to operate as such. And I think this might be a time when we're going to see a lot more of that, you know, a lot more of, of students stepping into the space to to advocate and, and, and um, really kind of exercise authentic, empowered agency to get the kind of learning that they need. I'll just, uh, just a little program note. Uh, Tanji is referring to a podcast that we did as part of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, where we spoke with the superintendent of Baltimore's uh, pu city public schools, Sonia Santelises. Sorry. Just Thank you. Had to I forgot. explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to add this that what a great opportunity not to create, because I think the consciousness is not created, it's there, but to awaken the student consciousness of what's going on in our society, to create a social consciousness that for a while really wasn't very active. But we, I think we have a great opportunity because of everything that has happened in our time period right now to wake that consciousness, to say, this is time to be active. This is what you do when things go on. I mean, to create that sense that yes, as a student, I can make a difference. My voice does have a meaning and it does carry a bolt. So I think that that's an important piece for us to really push forward is that waking up the social consciousness that the kids have has to be one of the major things that we do. It seems to me though that this is actually what the anti-critical race theory uh, activists are actually very worried about. They don't want that. That's what they're worried about. Am, am I wrong? <laughs> No, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that's exactly what they don't want us to do. And I think it's time for us to, especially here, that we don't have the laws. We don't have the issues coming over. It's, it's for time for us to wake up our students, to create that social, which I really think is starting to happen. We used to only have one section eight studies with so many kids wanting to get into it. And it's not an easy, not an easy class whatsoever that we're having to create another section and we probably have to create a third section before we open the 23rd. Um, and why not? And I think it's an important thing for us to keep an eye on and the fact that they want to learn, this is something that they want. And I think exactly what Tanji said, tell them that they can't learn this and that they're going to want to learn it right away. 
And I think the message has been loud and clear that people were saying that you can't do this. And then we were getting the calls and they're like, can I get into ethnic studies? How can I change my schedule to make that happen? So I think that, you know, it may be something that happens. And here in California, we're pretty close to actually making a graduation requirement across the state. I think once that happens, we'll be pretty protected from what goes on in there. So many of the bills actually have language that students should not be taught that, quote, an individual by virtue of his race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously or not. Is that anything that you have seen or believe is being taught? Um, Ms. Mason, you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, I, I think that's where we really get the political aspect and how we are getting people to buy into this idea that's not true. Um, nobody, I, most teachers, I will say, are not in the classroom trying to tell students that they are inherently racist. Even though I teach in a predominantly black and brown school, I do have a small population of white students. That's why it's super important that I talk to them about the white heroes during slavery, during segregation, during Jim Crow, because it's important for them to understand that there were white people that were a part of this fight, that there were white people who understood that those systemic structures needed to be decimated and they were a part of doing so. And so we have to use podcasts like these to change that narrative, to make people is not um, some type of system that is based on making a certain group feel as if they are the root cause to all of society's ills. What this is about is ensuring that we tell the truth, that we capture history in an authentic way, and that we provide students with the opportunity to understand what has happened before them so that they can understand where they're going. You cannot change anything if you do not know from whence you came. And it would be a total travesty if we didn't teach Martin Luther King Jr. in our classrooms so that we don't birth the next Martin Luther King Jr., who may be Latino, who may be white, who may be Asian. And we have to understand the power in this work that we're doing. And authenticity is at the root of that power. So I think, you know, we, they're doing a huge disservice by putting this, you know, makeup over this term to make people feel like it is something that is bad. And it's something that is going to make a certain group stand out. It's not, it is to make sure that we are telling the whole picture of history so that our students are more engaged and more empowered and can activate their voices. Mr. Levin, you've you've been involved in a lot of professional development of teachers. Have you seen this? Have you been have you like have you seen this terrible pro professional development? Yeah, I, I'm sort of chuckling here because I remember, you know, I guess late last year when this sort of public debate about critical race theory sort of surfaced. And I'll be honest with you, and I consider myself to be a fairly informed individual. Um, I I didn't know much of anything about critical race theory. I had to go back and, and sort of read a little, you know, in 20 years of teaching, I, I've never 
uh, heard a, uh, you know, I've never heard the, the concept, you know, voiced from a teacher I've worked with or in my own department. Um, it's never come up. Although, of course, you know, after you spend a little bit of time reading, you realize that you have been teaching critical race theory in any number of ways. I don't know how you can teach the history of the Jim Crow era without sort of uh, talking about sort of structural racism and trying to understand the relationship between the law and, and race and racism. Um, and I think, it, you know, I, so, so the answer to your question is, is no, um, none of these uh, concerns have, have come up or these, uh, the, these catchwords, if you will. But I do think, Karen, it, it speaks to your earlier point that this is, there is a, a very noticeable sort of political component to all of this. And I think that is that, you know, conservatives that are sort of leading the march on this um, are worried about the kinds of citizens that are produced as a result of learning uh, a certain kind of history. I think they see a very close link between uh, the study of history and, um, and political persuasion uh, in the end and who you will vote for. Uh, and so I think that is really where this battle is is being waged, I think, at least in their minds. Um, you know, that's that I, I think helps explain why so many of these laws are vague, uh, because a lot of this is so much about just trying to intimidate teachers. Um, we won't see that many brought to court um, because how do you hold up any of these laws in a, in a court of law? I mean, they're just so incredibly vague. But it is about intimidation. It is about steering people. Um, steering the conversation to charter schools and sort of pushing public schools and funding of public schools in the opposite direction. Um, there's so much going on with this. Um, it's just a cover up for it, I think. It's a great subterfuge. And I think one of the things, Karen, you and I have talked about, and we've talked about it with other guests, is the ease with which this recurring playbook just keeps coming up. So this is not the first time this has happened. Right. So we can go back historically over and over and over again. And and people who want to engage in anti-democratic behaviors understand what's necessary to get them there. Right. They understand the push points. They understand the vulnerabilities of their constituencies and they understand how best to tap into that. And no one's asking, like, that's the question people got to keep saying, why is there a cadre of the population who's so willing to bite on this particular piece, right? Why are they so willing and able and, and, and wanting to not see the truth behind who the country has been, right? So, you know, we are both of the things we say we are at the same time. So we are a nation who holds up or espouses principles of equity, not equity, principles of freedom and liberty. And at the same time, we are a nation that actively worked to suppress that in other people and, you know, annihilate and commit genocide against an entire group. We have to help kids understand both of those are true at the same time. You know, we can't, you know, I know that it is a challenge to our collective identity, um, but in the long run, it creates the kind of citizenry our constitution has put on paper, which is kind of an interesting well, thing. 
it's it's the question. I think, Mr. Levin, you said it. You know, what kind of country are we? But also, what kind of country do we want to be? We've, you know, what kind of people do we want to be? And we have some choices here. And um, it seems to me that one of the things that has pushed this conversation was the murder of George Floyd. And Mr. Anderson, you and I talked about this. Um, You live uh, very near where George Floyd was murdered. You teach very near where Philando Castile was murdered. Um, These are very present issues for you. Are your students demanding this kind of information that will help them explain how these things can happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Dante Wright is another one who's killed actually five or six blocks from our school here in Brooklyn Center. Our school is in Brooklyn Park. Um, We, our school shut down for a week when there was unrest around that and the George Floyd verdict was the same, same week. And even before Dante Wright with George Floyd and Philando Castile, our students have been asking. So, um, and that was one of the more difficult things that I was, I taught over distance learning. Distance learning was very hard, but we spent time talking about policing and that's obviously a very political thing, but just there's a lot of data and numbers that go into it. There's a lot of history uh, that goes into policing, slave patrols and all those types of things. There's also a lot of different police departments around the country doing different things. And so there's a lot of you know, documentaries and resources and police officers trying community policing and uh, de-escalation techniques. And so students wanted that and they were very engaged in that. Um, and so we were working on, in one of my classes on that, even just getting in touch with our local leaders and trying to build relationships with them, uh, starting that process. And that was when Dante Wright was killed. And it was sort of a very discouraging time because it felt sort of like hopeless in the sense that we can do all this educating and work on one hand, but then these things keep happening on the other. But that uh, what was just stated, if we don't know where we came from or what's preceded us, we can't really chart a course forward. And our students are really interested in that. They're really interested in hearing about police uh, policies and you know, use of force. There's some really good TED Talks about just the different things that have uh, been going on, a lot of resources out there for students. And it's, it is very political, but you can teach it in a way where we're looking for solutions. We're looking for justice. We want things to be right. We want the community. Our kids have a lot to say about what kind of community they want to live in. They want to live in a community where there's peace. They want to live in a community without, without gun violence, but they want to live in a community where they feel safe from law enforcement as well. Like they, they don't see contradiction. Like those are things we should be able to have. And so they want to know why we are in this, in this historical moment. And there's tons of material and tons of things that can be done there. Um, And I think one of the discouraging things about these latest laws and stuff is even those kind of conversations would, would be red flags for some of these people who are pushing these because they really don't want to talk about race at all. They don't want to talk about the history of race. They don't want to understand it. And so one of the reasons it's kind of funny that we say, uh, we chuckle when we hear these things that, you know, you can't teach that people are inherently racist based on their race. What we're trying to do is understand the history of race and undermine the idea of race by understanding it through history. But there's sort of trying to flip it back um, on us. But yeah, our students are really, they want to know and they want to be involved and they want to uh, look for answers and solutions that are rooted in an understanding of history as well. And does that resonate for you, Mr. Uh, Garcia? 
Absolutely. I was actually nodding the whole time that I heard you talking. Um, that's exactly what's going on. They really don't want to talk about race. They, it is a, it's a power grab. It, it is a mourning of the last administration. It is how do we create enough of a disturbance that you know we get the people we want elected? That's really what's going on. And it's happening in the local politics as much as happening nationwide. And I think that's what we need to be aware of. And that's why that social consciousness is so important because the only way we stop it is by people becoming aware. The only way that we really get ahead of this is by educating people to understand what's really going on. So I think I think this was a great conversation. Is there any is there something we haven't covered? Is there any closing thought that you all have? My only closing thought is to both of you, uh, teachers. If you guys want to come to California, come to our teacher. We'll ha- I'll hire you. In a <laughs> Sounds like a trip. <laughs> I would love to take you up on that offer. <laughs> For sure. It's not too hot. It's beautiful, you know, Southern right. California. Perfect. It's absolutely perfect. My final thought is that as long as we continue to have these conversations with diverse groups of educators and educational stakeholders, because we have to understand that representation matters in every walkway, right? We have to understand that if we want white teachers to understand the power of the critical race theory, they need to hear from white teachers who have utilized it, who understand it, who have embraced it, how they implement it and how they do so with fidelity. It's the same way with African-American, Latino teachers, Native American, Asians, whichever group we're talking about, we need to make sure that everybody is represented, has a seat at the table and are really able to articulate what this looks like and why it is important so that we can grow and cultivate a pipeline of teachers who believe in this and we can then turn the tides and we can make people understand why it's important and why it should not be shunned. Yeah, I, I just wanna echo what what Sharifa just said. I, I couldn't agree more. My, my hope is, again, that we embrace this moment as, as history educators to do a little educating um, you know, with parents and with the general public about what it is that we do. I mean, one of the things that has become crystal clear to me over the last, you know, over the last year is that we, perhaps we haven't done uh, such a good job of, of explaining what it is that we do in the classroom. You know, when I see parents in, you know, in Northern Virginia County going completely ballistic at some of these meetings, um, you know, with the accusations of what they think is going on in the classroom, I think, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here. Uh, maybe there there is an opportunity for us to, you know, find those forums, uh, find those opportunities, um, you know, in which we can do a little educating ourselves with with uh, with the general public. What we do is really important. Um, and think of the moments in the recent past where we weren't given any attention, right? It wasn't that long ago where, you know, sort of science and math, right? That's what usually gets all the attention and funding. That's what's important for our kids to know moving forward. Um, and now history is center stage, right? And, um, and so, I, again, I think this is a real opportunity for us. Not all teachers welcome that kind of public scrutiny. Mr. Anderson, how do you feel about that? Your final thought on that? Well, I was... I'll, I'll segue into just saying, I think some of the voices that we're not hearing a lot from are black students and brown students and their parents and their families. And I think that, you know, that's the demographic of our school and 
they want to know this information. They want to learn the truth. They're interested in it. And our parents also value that. And so I think it's important for schools and for teachers, like has been said several times, to be connected to our parents, our stakeholders, and know that they want us to be teaching their students the truth about American history and giving their students the skills that they need to navigate um, in this society. So I think I want to hear more from them. I know you guys are doing a podcast with students uh, in the future, so I'm, I'm excited to hear about that. And yeah, I think listening to more parents on both sides of this uh, situation is important. It's true. There's one side that has gotten all the attention, and uh, you're absolutely right to talk about that. So I really want to thank everybody. I think we're bringing this conversation to a really important point. You know, what kind of people do we want to be? What kind of country do we want to have? How do we think about the country we have inherited and how do we want to move it forward? And and understanding the history is so important. So I really appreciate this um, conversation and I hope it's helpful to the uh, to the education field and we will be sending it out. So thank you again. Thank you, guys. Nice seeing you both of you. Bye-bye. That wraps up the fifth episode of EdTrust's new podcast, Ed Trusted. For lots of links to articles and resources, check out our show notes. We want to thank Kevin Levin, Sergio Garcia, Thomas Anderson, and Sharifa Mason for a conversation that we hope will be really helpful to educators around the country. We also want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast, including, but not limited to, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Karen Lomax, Jack Fleming, Keith Curry, and William Morgan. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits this podcast. Our theme music is composed by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time.